0: Matthew chapter 19, we have in this chapter marriage, kids, life, and eternity. Just a few small subjects. It's pretty comprehensive. It kind of covers everything. Marriage, kids, eternity, comprehensive, just unbelievable. If you remember last week... Matthew 18 is all about reconciliation, community, walking this thing outright. It gives steps to do that. And then Peter asks that brilliant question, okay, you've given us all this this stuff. How often do we have to forgive? Seven times? And Jesus answers, no, 77 times. That the kingdom, the city that I'm building, the church, it is to be marked by radical forgiveness. And then Jesus gives that story of the man that owed 10,000 talents, 5,000 lifetimes. And the master, the generous master forgives him of that debt. Then he goes out, grabs the guy that owes him 100 days of labor and starts to choke him and puts him in prison. He's not forgiving. And so the king takes that evil servant and throws him in prison. And so Jesus says, that's how important forgiveness is. If you do not forgive others, the father won't forgive you. So there's just, it's just forgiveness. Right after that, we jump into chapter 19. What's the first subject we talk about? Marriage. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> because... Great marriages have a bank that is full of forgiveness. If you want a great marriage, you had better have a giant capacity to forgive because you're going to know someone on a level that's so deep, it's going to give you tons of opportunity to practice Matthew 18. Okay? So this is not a coincidence. So let's jump in. First marriage. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. If you remember, I've been hinting at this thing Jesus is doing. He's making this, this, it's a big semicircle started up in Tyre and Sidon where he healed the Canaanite woman in chapter 15. Then he goes over chapter 16 to Caesarea Philippi. And then he makes his way down to Galilee. And then after Galilee, he leaves there in this chapter and he crosses the Jordan and goes down the Great Rift Valley, down to probably close to the Dead Sea, because in the next chapter, he's going to be in Jericho. So he's now traveling in, I was just in the Great Rift Valley it is hot there. When we were there, it was 113 degrees. And so I was really excited about swimming in the Dead Sea because I thought, man, I'm going to cool off. But it was also 113 degrees. So it was just hot. So Jesus is in this tremendously hot environment. And it says all these crowds followed him. Why? Because he's the answer. It doesn't matter where he's going. I want to be with him whether it's nice, cool Galilee or beautiful Caesarea Philippi or Tyre and Sidon. I just want to be with Jesus. That's what these crowds have figured out. If you're with Jesus, good things happen. So they followed him, great crowds. He's healing them. And then we get verse three. And the Pharisees came up to him. They must've just been waiting there. Like, well, he'll get here pretty soon. I don't know how long they're waiting, sweating out there, 113 degrees, just waiting to get Jesus. Finally, he arrives. They're like, yes. And they tested him. Do they really want answers to this? No. They want to trap Jesus. And we're going to see from here through chapter 22, it is trap after trap after trap after trap. So they come testing him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. Here's the test. Now, I've mentioned this before. This is the controversy of the day. So take our controversies, the DNC leaked emails, leaking the day before the convention. Did the Russians do it? You know, who's, are they fiddling with our stuff? Trump and his bankruptcies refugee crisis, whatever controversy there is right now, you take that, that's what this was. And it centered around marriage and divorce. And the reason why is there's two texts in the Old Testament, and that's it on divorce. First one, Exodus 21, where it says this, and it's an interesting kind of marriage situation, but essentially the text says this, if the husband does not provide to his wife food, clothing, and sex, then that wife is free to leave that husband because he has broken the covenant of marriage, which stipulates caring for one another. Because you haven't done these three big things. You haven't fed your wife, which is pretty important. You're not buying her new clothes or whatever it was. And you're not giving her her due, physical, sexual needs. Because you haven't done those, you've broken the marriage covenant. And now the wife is free to leave that marriage. It's interesting, fascinating to think that through. Because who actually breaks the marriage? Is it the woman leaving the marriage? No. The husband who failed to do those three things broke it, and the woman is now set free. So you can look at that, read that, think that through on your own. That's the first one. And then there's only one other one, and it's Deuteronomy 24. And in Deuteronomy 24, it's Moses now. And if you know my reading of the Torah, there's more and more laws being added because there's more sin. We'll talk more about that. So you get to Deuteronomy 24, you're almost at the end of the Torah. And he adds another law, and it says, okay, from now on, if you want to divorce your wife, you have to give her a written certificate of divorce. And if you find in your wife, and the Hebrew there, it's very rare. It's found that one spot, and that's it. That's the real hard part about it. The Hebrew there, if you find some indecency in her, then you write her bill of divorce and you give it to her. And then you cannot remarry her later. So if she goes and gets married again, you can't. So, so I think that's just simply saying, there's no wife swapping. We're not going to do that. You're not going like to give her a divorce and then remarry her a week later. N- none of that. Once it's done, you're done. You've made that decision. All right, so, so that's the other one. And the controversy is over that Hebrew word. What does indecency mean? What is it? So that was 1,400 years before this. Now, as time went on, essentially it boiled down into two camps, how to interpret Deuteronomy 24. The first camp, Shimei said this, it's only adultery. Sexual immorality, your wife having sex with somebody else... That is what severs. That's the indecency that leads to giving of a certificate of divorce, okay? So that's number one. The other side said this. It was halal. He said the word indecency should, should be interpreted displeases. So if your wife displeases you, then you divorce her. <laughs> Which one do you think was more popular with men? Yeah, Okay. It's not hard to figure out, like, hey, that's kind of cool. Like, anything? Like, really? Wow, this is awesome. She unpleased, she, you know, whatever, did something. So I'm just giving her a divorce right now. So this view, these two views had been around for a while. Hillel was by far the most popular. So now you have generations of men growing up with their... Hillel's understanding of Deuteronomy 24, even the disciples had this, and you'll see it colors their response when Jesus corrects it. So Hillel said, man, any kind of indecency, you fire her essentially. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus first defines marriage. Second, he defends marriage. And thirdly, he describes the alternative. There's one alternative to marriage. You know what it is? staying single. <laughs> that's pretty it. You know? Either you're single or married. There's no. That's it. So this is what Jesus does. It's brilliant. So verse four, he answered, have you not read? Is that insulting? It's a little insulting. These are Pharisees. They memorized the first five books of the Bible. Jesus is poking them right now. It's a hot region. It's getting hotter. Haven't you read So Jesus now defines marriage. What's marriage? The disciples and the Pharisees had this view of marriage. It's to please man. And if I'm displeased by my marriage, I fire my wife. So for generations, these men have been looking at marriage as it needs to please me. If my wife, Deuteronomy 24, does something that displeases me, I just get rid of her. So that's the culture into what Jesus is now speaking. So what does Jesus do? He says, number one, have you read your Bible? And he goes, not to the law. Where does he go? He goes to page one. I'm not going to go to Moses. I'm going go to creation. And he quotes the Trinity getting together, discussing the creation of humanity. And it's them saying, let us make man in our image. So God created them in his image. He made them male and he made them female. That's what Jesus goes back to. He goes all the way back to page one. He does not go to the law. He goes to design. Here is the design of marriage. Number one, he says this, you guys are the Imago Dei. You are image bearers of God. Now for us to image bear God, What does it require? A male and a female, right? He created one species, humanity, but then he says inside of this one species, there's going to be this complexity. You're going to have a man there. You're going to have a woman there. And actually when they come together, that's when they image bear me correctly. I'm not image bore by just a man and I'm not image bore by just a woman, but I'm image bore by the two becoming one. All right? So God is creator. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. God creates. What happens after a man and a woman get married and they come together? They create, right? They make little humans. They create more humans. I hope we're not learning anything right here. You should know this. <laughs> right? They, they're, we image bear because now we are creating, if you would, more little humans. It's it's the same thing. Inside the Trinity, there's unity, one God, but there's complexity, three persons. Inside of marriage, there's one, we're called one, but is there complexity in marriage? Oh my goodness. There's a ton of complexity inside of marriage. So you see image bearing when the male and female come together, okay? So in creation, what you see is there is a difference in humanity than the rest of the created order. We're to image-bear God. We're not like goats. We're not like rabbits. We're not like rats. We're not to be that way. We're to be something very different. We're to image-bear God, number one. So marriage is not procreation. Marriage is not love. Marriage is not, hey, am I pleasing my man? Like they thought, marriage is number one. According to Jesus, what is it? Image-bearing God. Are we in our relationship with each other, our oneness, are we image-bearing God well? That's the first thing Jesus says. He defines marriage. You're image-bearers. And then he goes from page one, now he goes to page two, chapter two. And he says, therefore, now he's quoting chapter two, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, King James is cleave cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now he goes, page two, all right? First definition of marriage is you guys are image bearers of me. And then second is you're to cleave. The Hebrew for that word, hold fast here, it's Greek. But if you go back to Hebrew in chapter two, verse 24, the Hebrew there, it means literally to covenant. You guys are covenanting to each other. You're leaving this relationship of mom and dad, which used to be the primary, and you're leaving that, and now you are covenanting to this new person. Marriage is a covenant. If you wanna read what that covenant should look like, read how God describes his marriage to Israel in Ezekiel 16, where he says, I found you and you were cast, you were just an infant that had been discarded. And I took you and I washed you and I cared for you and I raised you up. And when the time was right, when you were old enough, I spread my skirt over you. I promise to be faithful to you. We covenanted together and we were married. That's true marriage. Marriage is I pledge myself to you, I'm cleaving to you, I'm promising to be faithful to you. It's none of this nonsense today that I hear from men. We don't need that ceremony, we're married on the inside. It's just a piece of paper. I don't need it. Yes, you do. Because without it, you're not married. You have not pledged yourself to each other. You have not done Ezekiel 16. You have not done Genesis 2. You are not married. So the covenant of marriage, I believe in that moment, in a ceremony where two people are truly covenanting, cleaving to each other, pledging faithfulness to each other, I think it is right there in that moment that God does the miracle of taking the two and making them one. If you have not done that, you are not married. It's that simple. That's what the Bible says. So the two become one right there. So this is Jesus' definition of marriage. One, your marriage is to image bear God. Two, is a covenant. And you guys are to be faithful to each other. So Jesus does not go to the Torah. He does not go to the law, okay? He goes way, way, way before this. So then, here's what happens. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? I have the word command underlined. <laughs> it's like this <laughs> She displeased me, so Moses commands me to fire her. I mean, is that really what he did? No, I mean, it's such a, they're so twisted now from the original tent of Deuteronomy 24. They think it's command. Like, we have to do this. I'm sorry. You know, I kind of actually liked you, but mo- it's the law. You're gone. Here's a divorce, right? It's just so hilarious. So Jesus right away, he, he corrects that because he uses the word allowed. <laughs> he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you, not commanded you, to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery, all right? So which side did Jesus take? Hallel? Displeasure? We're done? No, he takes Shammai. What is Jesus doing in this moment? He's protecting women. If you read Exodus 21 and you read Deuteronomy 24, what you see is both of those laws, are def- they're defending women. That's what it is. And Jesus does not go to the law to decide what to do about this question. Jesus goes to the beginning. This is one of the texts where I believe you see that the Mosaic covenant was always temporary. It was never meant to be the way. Um, I see the Abrahamic covenant as the predominant covenant. The Mosaic covenant was, law was added because of transgression. It's Galatians chapter three. Jesus is saying the same thing. I'm not going to the law. That's what was given because you guys are so messed up because of hardness of heart, because you kept sinning. We had to give you more and more laws. The true Way of things is way before that, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And this is just temporary until the promised seed comes. That's what Galatians 3, 19 says, all right? So Jesus here doesn't go to that. goes way before that, and he says, marriage is this, it is permanent. It is a covenant, and it's not to be broken. That's what he says, all right? So there's some questions, obviously. What does it mean? And if you have an older translation it'll include a little phrase at the bottom of verse nine. Um, My ESV does not have it. So it ends with just, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So what is this adultery? You get divorced, you get remarried. Are we living in sexual immorality? What's happening there? If you've been following the news, The Roman Catholic Church is moving on some stuff that is fascinating. So three weeks ago, the Archbishop of Philadelphia, Charles Capu, came out and he said this, okay, Roman Catholics, if you're divorced, you can get remarried. Massive movement, right? Right there. So what, if you know Roman Catholicism, it's a sacrament, and a sacrament is this, God did it, God doesn't make mistakes. So they never had divorce. What'd you do if you're a Catholic and you were married and you want to get out of your marriage? You got an annulment, right? And the annulment said this, it was never valid. You were never really married to that person. <laughs> so they, they, they're, they're, they're moving on some of that stuff, which is fascinating. But here's what else he said. Yeah, okay. If you're divorced, you can get remarried. But he said this, if you get remarried, you may not have sex with each other. <laughs> yeah, I laugh too. I'm like, pfft. a celibate man telling married people how to live their life. It's always funny to me. Like you, you guys... Probably are not the experts in this area. Leave it to somebody else. So yes, if you're divorced, you can get remarried, but you can't have sex with her. Oh, that's awesome. What about 1 Corinthians 7? I mean, my goodness. It's just nutty. So what does this mean? What does adultery mean? Are they right? Can you not have sex because you're going to be committing adultery? Is is that what's being said here? Um, Here's what I think. Matt Heverly, take it, leave it. Don't care. I'm sticking with this. I believe sexual immorality, immorality, adultery, inside of marriage, breaks the covenant. The two become one. If there's someone else in there, it's broken. Now, can God repair that? Absolutely, but it's broken. And there's gonna be work in order to repair the damage that's done if adultery happens. So it's broken right there. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. I'll try to explain that in a second. So adultery breaks a marriage. It just break, it's broken. The trust, the pledge to be faithful, the pledge to become one, all that's broken. All those covenants you made are broken. And if you look at the Old Testament in the way that it uses the term adultery, adultery is very often used by God to say, my people broke my covenant. Read Jeremiah 5. You guys, we made a covenant. Jeremiah 5 says, I made a covenant with you guys to be faithful to you, for you to be my spouse, for you to keep these commands, for us to walk together. And in Jeremiah 5, 7, God says this, you worshiped idols and you committed adultery against me. What's he saying there? Well, first command is what? Have another God before me. You broke that covenant. And because you broke that covenant now, God is equating that with adultery. So adultery, God uses it in the way of just breaking agreements and breaking covenants. So putting that all together, here's what I'll say. Divorce, to me, is always amputation. I've used this before. If the two are really one, the only way to get them back apart is amputate. And amputation is always the absolute last option. You try everything. That's why the church tries everything. Everything possible until there's no hope. And then we just give up. So, divorce may be necessary, but it is never good. Never. I've never seen a good divorce. That was a really good divorce. It's never good because there's always going to be scar tissue, there's always going to be something there that hurts you. There's always sin, verse eight. Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart. Whenever there's divorce, There's always sin. Okay. Okay, Matt. But do you remarry people that have been divorced? First thing I do is this. I talk with them. Hey, let's chat. And I want to see if there's been repentance. So I start asking questions. What happened? And if the wife or the husband's like, my ex, such a slob, total disaster, never did anything right. Just a complete moron. I cannot stand him. I am so glad to be away from him. He never made enough money. Forget him. I'm like, oh They're sin there, right? I mean, let's say you're right. The fact that you married the moron makes you sinful, so you should repent anyways, right? <laughs> Something was messed up there. If he's that bad, I mean, you should have seen it. I want repentance. I want, you know what? Mistakes were made. We both blew it. We were young. We didn't do things right. Yes, he had problems. Yes, I had problems. Absolutely. I've forgiven him. I've repented over those things. I've moved on. Okay, that's good. And I believe this. Repentance works. I don't think divorce is the unforgivable sin. I think there's one unforgivable sin, and that's it. Every other sin can still be forgiven the same way. You repent, you confess, and Jesus Christ forgives you and cleanses you from it. That's repentance. I believe repentance really works. But I also know in divorce, there's always sin and it has to be dealt with. And I think in this text right here, Jesus assumes divorced people will remarry. He's saying, hey, when you get remarried, there's this adultery thing. Okay, what does that mean then? Here's what I think is being said right here. It's verse nine. It says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and then there's this little clause, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. What's that little clause for? Why does he put in there, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery? Here's what I believe is being said. That little clause, except for sexual immorality, Jesus is saying, if that's happened, the divorce is, you know, the marriage is already broken. It's already broken. So if you're in a marriage where one person or the other person has committed adultery and then you go to divorce, it's already broken. Done. It's over. But if you're in a marriage where things are just not working or whatever happens and then you get divorced, but there is never any sexual immorality, there is still a connection, a soulless connection. And it's not broken until you marry someone else and have relations with them. And then it's broken completely and you attach to somebody else. I personally believe that's what's being said there. And I know I can be alone on this, but that's the way I read it. If you have questions, love to chat with you. So Jesus hits it hard. And listen to the way his disciples respond. It's not a continual act of adultery. It's the one breaking of covenant so that you can come back together with another person. The word adultery there, it's not a continual. Greek is very good like this. It'll say there are actions that have continual process to them, that's not what this is. It's a one-time action, and then it's done. So it's severed new relationship. So the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Why are they saying this? Because they had been raised under Hillel, which said what? You divorce whenever you want to. Marriage is to please the man. And if you're displeased in any way, get rid of her and get somebody else. So now Jesus is reversing that and saying, no way. That is not the deal at all. You guys, from the beginning, this is the way it was supposed to be. Let not man separate what God has united together. There's a breaking, it's hard, and it's wrong, and there's always sin in it. So now they're like, oh my goodness, marriage is really hard. (laughs) And does Jesus correct them? No, he doesn't say, Oh, I forgot to tell you, and they lived happily ever after. No, he's like, Yeah, okay, it is hard. Listen to what he says. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. What I'm gonna say right now is hard marriage is hard, no doubt about it. I joke. The only people that believe marriage is easy are engaged people. And it's my job in premarital counseling to correct them. And I do that. It's the only people that are like, hey, we're just going to make it happen. Sure, you are. (laughs) My favorite metaphor of marriage is from Solomon, the Song of Solomon. He calls his bride a garden. Do nice gardens, you guys garden? Who in here gardens? Gardens take work? Are they just kind of scatter some seed and leave, right? Just let it go. Do You end up with just a beautiful garden if you just let nature take its course. I joke in Southern Oregon, if you let a plot of ground just lay fallow, you'll either get poison oak, blackberries, or marijuana. That's what you're going to get. Just <laughs> boom, it's going to be there. You're not going to have a lush garden. You got to work that ground. Okay, that's marriage. Marriage, you, you see great Marriages, someone's gardening, someone's fertilizing and watering and pulling weeds and working at it. That's how you get brilliant marriages. So Jesus here says, if you can receive it, here's what I'm gonna tell you. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Here's your alternative. Marriage is going to be hard. It's going to take work. It's beautiful. It's good. There's great things to it. It's going to take work. If you don't want that, here's your alternative. And I love the breadth of what Jesus says right here. He says, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. That this whole sexuality thing, it's it's more complicated than we like to make it we want to make it really easy. It's not. Jesus is saying because of the fracture of the fall, some babies are born messed up. So I've read all kinds of statistics on this. I've heard 1 in 1,500 all the way to 1 in forty-five hundred. One 1 in 1,500 to 1 in 4,500 babies are born with what's called ambiguous genitalia. You don't know if it's a boy or a girl. I don't know. And at that point, when they're little, you almost got to just make a decision. Well, let's make him a boy. Let's make her a girl. Now, in the last 10 years, we've advanced with DNA testing that we can figure out a little bit better what's happened and then make a better call. But up till 10 years ago, it was just like, I don't know. So Jesus is really saying, listen, this thing is complicated. You want to make it simple. It's not. A little bit of a broken world. So I talk to people that have same-sex attraction, and they'll tell me this, listen, I was born this way. I don't argue with them. I say, okay, I can believe that. I don't have any problem with that, all right? I was born with really bad desires too. I have a two-year-old son, Myron, who has some bad desires, right? Give me or else. I remember my son, Elijah, if, if he wanted something, he did what we call the face rake at two years of age. Give me that, right? We're all born broken, The Bible does this. It does not condemn same-sex attraction. It condemns same-sex action, whether it's a heterosexual doing it or someone that says, I struggle with this. Doesn't matter, either one. That's what the Bible says. Stop. You can't do that. So I say the same same thing to those people. Listen, man, we all have our struggles. We're all trying to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We all have our battles. This is yours. And I think this text clearly says, here's the alternative. And I send people to this great website. It's called livingout.org. It's this pastor who's in London. He is brilliant, has struggled with same-sex attraction his whole life. And has said, I am living a celibate full life just like Jesus. And he's a brilliant, brilliant man. Check, his name is Ed Shaw, Pastor Ed Shaw. And the church that worked with him is amazing. He said, I had the best experience in church. People that uh, say, man, church did this to me or this, whatever, they, they were judgmental. He said the opposite. I just had a church that supported me, that walked with me, that shared truth with me. And he said, it was such a blessing. And now he's a pastor doing really, really good work in England. So I think I got to be careful. I got to be careful being judgmental of people and condemning them and not really listening well to them. Jesus here, verse 12, this thing's complex. It is complex. Be careful. So on marriage, I'll end like this. Uh, My wife and I had our anniversary back in January, 16 years. We went out to eat. Uh, The waitress found out that we have been married 16 years. And she goes, oh, that's so awesome. That's so long. I'm like, is it? (laughs) Okay, I'll take it. She goes, what's your secret? What's the secret to staying married for 16 years? (laughs) I don't know what she was expecting. She probably was not expecting this. Because I said, because I promised I promise to be faithful to her for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in life, in death, until it separates us. I made a promise, and I'm keeping that promise. She just said, oh, let me get your appetizers. (laughs) I think my wife was like, oh my goodness, why? (laughs) It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, cleave. I made a covenant and I'm going to be faithful to that covenant. And secondly, there's this whole love thing. So I think it was four years ago, five years ago, my wife and I were kind of joking around and I don't know how it came up, but she said, why do you love me? It may have been even longer than that ago. That's a trap question, isn't it? Because if I was saying to my wife, I love you because of your hair what if all of her hair falls out? Does my love fall out? What if she gets cancer and has to get treatment? She doesn't have her hair anymore. So is my love tied to her hair? If it's it's your eyes, what if she gets cataracts? Does that change my love for her, right? I know her body's gonna change because five kids and life is gonna happen. I know her skin's gonna, so no matter what you say there, what if it changes? Does your love then change? This is what I told her. I said, I love you because I love you. Period. Now, I did not originate that. I stole it from guess who? God. Listen to Deuteronomy 7. If you want to steal good material, God's usually pretty good. Listen to what he says Deuteronomy 7 7. I'll back up to 6. For you are a people holy. To Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples, but it is because Yahweh loves you. Why does God love Israel? Because I love Israel. That's what God says. I love you. Why? Because we're the most? Because we're the strongest? Because we're the most handsome? No. I love you. Because I love you. That's what I think marriage is based on. Not on some kind of other quality, but it's a decision to say, I am cleaving and I'm covenanting to you, period. And I love you because I love you. And that's never going to change. That to me is the foundation that makes marriage safe. You can only be vulnerable and honest with somebody that you think is safe. Like this won't scare him off. This won't scare her off. I can really tell you what I'm feeling. I can really tell you who I am. I can take off my mask. The only time you can do that is if you've made those two decisions. I have covenanted to you and I love you because I love you. It is inside of those two things that marriage blossoms, because all of a sudden, I can be honest here, I'm not going to run him off. I'm not going to run her off. I can really let him, I can really let her know who I am. And that's when souls mix, and you get what God wants, the two becoming one. It's brilliant. So Jesus hammers marriage brilliantly. And the next thing that comes is, guess what? Kids. Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. (laughs) And Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Notice the contrast. You've got kids, and you can look at cultures 2,000 years ago. Kids were subhuman, right? Some cultures didn't even name their kids until they got old enough because there's so many of them died. So so they're almost like a a, a subhuman class. That's why the disciples are like, get out of here, kids. And Jesus says, "Oh, oh, no way. Look at the contrast. The Pharisees who are the power brokers, the most important people, what does he do to them? Oh, he puts the wood to them. Kids come, what does he do to the kids? I'll let them come. They couldn't do anything for him. They couldn't help his ministry. They weren't gonna give him accolades. I'll let them come. I love that. I love that contrast right here. He embraces the weak. And note, Jesus does not launch into a long Bible study on Leviticus to these kids, right? He doesn't explain the Torah to them. What does he do? It just says he put his hands on them and went away. I think sometimes we try to force feed kids so much, like garden hose them, just Jesus just touches them, gives them a hug, blesses them, and sends them on their way. I love that. It's beautiful. It's awesome. So you see this forgiveness, marriage, divorce, kids, and then we're going to see... a rich young kid, we saw him on Sunday, who's all messed up. Is that flow coincidence? Oh, no way. Because guess who gets run over when marriages don't work and forgiveness doesn't happen? Kids. You end up with rich young rulers that are kind of messed up. If you want a great study on this, it's, it's brutal. It's a book called Longevity. There'll never be in my life a, a book like this again. Started in 1918, they followed 1,500 preschoolers to find out what leads to a long life. So they had every amount of data in there different genders, different races, different um, like social economic status, rich, poor, you name it. You know, the number one predictor of an early death in 1,500. Kids from 1918, divorce in childhood, sobering. They couldn't figure it out. You know, they're not Christian or anything like that. They're just doing. They're like, we don't know this. We don't understand because the death was across the board, heart disease to uh, plane accidents. But the number one predictor of an early death in children was divorce in childhood. Just unbelievable. Why do we forgive? Why do we wrestle? Why do we work at the garden of marriage? Because it matters. It really, really matters. Hmm. So then we looked at verses 16 through 22. The rich young ruler on Sunday, um, Jesus says, sell all, give it away, follow me. He can't do it because he had great possessions. And there's always a tendency to be like, everybody should sell everything. No, Jesus only says this one time to one man because his possessions owned him. You could use anything you want because we all have different things that own us. I could use parenting. That, that's the, the, really our text right now. You could use parenting, right? Do kids own some parents? Yes. I have spoken with women that told me this. If my kid did that, I would die. Well, What you just told me was this. Your kid pulls the string to your life right how about certain cultures where if kids go south they have honor killings that kid did something that dishonored me someone a blood relative needs to go and kill them is that kids put in the wrong position absolutely it's now they're holding on to it tight it's anything you hold on to tight is going to kill you so jesus is trying to set this guy free jesus is trying to say trust me parents trust jesus Pray for your kids. Trust Jesus, you know? That's really what he's saying. Trust me. Get rid of all your possessions because you're going to have to trust me then. This thing won't have its pull on you anymore because it can't, it's gone. Trust me. Parents, trust me. All of it is trust. I'm a good and generous God. I did that study going all the way back to Genesis. Trust I'm a good and generous God, all right? So that was Sunday, verse 23. all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Oh man, he's just so awesome, isn't he? Without Peter in this book, we'd be like, oh, he's just the best. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Eternity. Jesus answers this question, and he says, after the rich young ruler refuses to give up his riches and follow him, he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get saved, or to enter the kingdom of God, I should say. Why is it harder for rich people? I have a thought. Surprise, surprise. And it came from a a mission field for myself. And then this conversation I had with Dak Swanson probably 12 years ago, 13 years ago. He'd come back from Africa. And he was telling me about visiting this guy. And the man was blind, crippled, and staying in this mud hut in the desert where it was 115 degrees. And so he was asked, hey, would you go say hello to this man? So he ducks into this little mud hut. It's all dark and dingy. He said, I went in there, and it was the strongest smell of urine I've ever smelled. He was just sitting in a pool of urine. And so he he sat down and started talking to this man. And the man knew English, and so they're talking. And he said, there was only one thing that man wanted to talk about when he found out I was a missionary. Guess what the one thing was? Heaven. Tell me about heaven. Could you read Revelation 21 and 22 to me? It was all heaven, 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 heaven. Why? Why? Because that man knew, this place is broken. This place is broken. Rich people have the ability to almost recreate Eden, don't they? Nice houses, beautiful lawns. It's almost Eden again. Close. And because they're close to Eden, they don't realize the brokenness of life. And it's more difficult for them to realize Heaven is where it's at. That's why. So Jesus gives this analogy. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person. Who here has heard this illustration that the eye of the needle was this little gate that was next to the big gate? So when the big gate was closed, you'd take this little gate and you'd have to unload the donkey and then you have to get the donkey down on his knees and pretty much drag the donkey through the little gate. Who's heard that? absolute false. (laughs) I've been to Israel. I've been all over Jerusalem. There is no gate like that. There has never been a gate like that. There is zero historical information. There's someone made it up a couple hundred years ago and just kept repeating it. Now it's become fact. There's no such thing. Jesus is literally saying it is easier to get a camel to go through a little needle than for a rich man to get saved. Sometimes I think we want to soften the words of Jesus. Don't do that. Read them for what they are. Can you get a camel through the eye of a needle? Well, if you put them in the blender, possibly. But other than that, it's not happening, okay? So Jesus, what does he respond? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So he's not saying, okay, here's what we going to do to rich people. You've got to take away all their belongings and then like drag them into the kingdom. You can do it. No, he's saying, uh-uh, only God can do this. If you take away that, if you make it a little short gate that does not exist, guess what? You're making it, it's like, maybe I could help then. Maybe I could drag him in. No, you can't. With men, it is impossible. That's what he's saying. You cannot get a camel through the eye of a needle, period. There's no gate. Only God can do it. Never ever reduce the words of Jesus cuz they lose what they're supposed to do. This is impossible. Only God can do it. And then he says, Peter, of course. Hey, 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 hey. The rich young ruler didn't leave all his possessions, but I did. What do I get? Right? I left like 5 bucks. <laughs> the problem with Peter was not money. The problem with Peter was his mouth, right? You got to get that thing under control that's your issue. Money is not your issue. Your mouth is. So you got a whole different thing. And Jesus, I just love it. He's so generous. He doesn't say, Peter, come on. Dude, I chose you. Team Z, failures and flunkies to show the power of Jesus, to show the power of my father. That's why I chose you. He doesn't say that. He's much more generous than that. But he's like, Peter, you're going to show that with God, all things are possible. Because that mouth of yours. I'm going to use it to save 3,000 people. I'm going to show you with all things, all things are possible with God. So he answers this brilliant answer. And he says, truly, I say to you, the word truly, if you know Greek, you know what it is? It's amen. And and you know, with praying, I have a little bit of a problem with ending prayers with amen. Jesus uses amen all the time to start conversations. It's interesting. He goes, amen, I say to you, in the, in the Greek there is, Palig Genesea. The Palig Genesea means this, the, the again birth. That's literally what it means, the again birth. In the again birth, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's coming a time, the Palig Genesea, the again birth, when, when I sit on my throne and things are right and you are rewarded. And then he ends with verse 30. But, but many who are first. Who's first? 12 disciples. Who's first? 12 disciples. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Yeah, Peter, you're going to get rewarded, but know this, in the kingdom, it's going to be upside down. And then chapter 20, this launches us into chapter 20, this incredible parable of laborers in the vineyard and Jesus doing something that first become last and the last become first, okay? It's just awesome. Um, So here's what Jesus is saying here. You can read ahead, please do chapter 20. He's saying this, it's never too late. Chapter 20, it's never too late. It's, you, you're not too far. You're not too bad. You're never out. Maybe you've been with four husbands and the man you're with right now is not your husband. Well, guess what? It's not too late for you. John chapter four, it's never too late. That's what Jesus is saying I don't care if you're Moses and you're 80 years old, it's not too late. Let's start now. You're Caleb and you're 84, let's start right now. It's the reason I love baseball. Baseball is, I think, the only sport where there's not like time. So in basketball, if you're down by 20 with two minutes left, impossible. You cannot make it, period. There's no way. But in baseball, you can be down by 20, bottom of the ninth, two outs, and rally. It's still possible. You're never written off. That's why I like baseball. Jesus is saying the same thing is in the kingdom. It's never too late. So tonight, maybe you feel like, man, I've blown it. Today was a wash. Got mad at the kids. Kicked the dog. Whatever. Guess what the Bible says happens tomorrow morning for you? Brand new mercies. So you have a palig genesea every single morning. There's a personal one for you every single morning. Jesus says, new birth, new beginning. Start again today. Let's go. Let's go. Jesus wakes you up and says, let's go. Brand new beginning, brand new mercies. Amen?